0: Welcome to Some Assembly Required, a bi-weekly design podcast where we discuss a range of topics from tech, industrial and product design, and sustainability. I'm Pablo Samoylis. And I'm George Wyeth. We're both product designers from the University of Sussex. This is episode four, Destination Imagination. Last episode, we posed the question of how fast our technology is advancing and whether that was a good or a bad thing. Be sure to check out that episode and any others that take your fancy after this.
1: Listeners, this episode is about to depart. Please keep your arms and legs inside the carriage and remain seated at all times. It's going to be a thrilling ride. So to kick off this episode, the first things that we need to do is to introduce our first ever guest to the show. So cheers, put your hands together,
2: you know, all that for Thomas, everybody. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. What, what an honour to be the first guest on Some Assembly Required, my word.
0: Mm, it's yes. very exciting.
2: Historic so, moment. Would you like to introduce yourself just a little bit? Yeah, sure. Well, I am uh, Thomas Heisman. I am a history graduate from the University of Sussex, like yourselves. I'm um, currently taking an MA in intellectual history. And I've come on the show, uh, well, you've invited me uh, onto the show today talk a little bit about uh, theme park design and how that sort of ties in to uh, sort of some uh, design ideas.
0: Exciting stuff.
2: Yeah. So
1: you did your dissertation, um, you know, around a little bit of theme parks and history and design stuff. So it seemed like a good opportunity to pick your brains.
2: Yeah, it was a bit of of an interesting one. in mind, I was taking history and I ended up producing a dissertation all about uh, theme parks and how sort of debates around theme parks came into conflict with debates around uh, heritage really that, that, that was it at the end of the day that's
0: i, I kind of want to read it to be honest <laughs>
1: it's yeah it's kind of an interesting topic I, dro- I dropped history i'll be honest as soon as i could at school um but i was always just bored of the sort of gen- generic history that you learn about but that's kind of you know it's a, a niche and interesting piece of history
2: yeah certainly is all right so
1: as you said um, today we're talking about theme parks and theme park design. Um, now there's a whole whole variety of stuff to talk about with theme parks um, and amusement parks and you know the differences between them. So I think we'll just first kick it off by just seeing as we've got a historian on, on board just to talk a little bit about where these theme parks and amusement parks started and how they've grown so kind of dramatically, I guess, over the last probably 100 years.
2: Yeah, well, there's sort of a difference, a subtle difference between amusement parks and theme parks. Theme parks sort of came out of amusement parks. But if we were to look at sort of the history of amusement parks, you'll find them from sort of three earlier uh, traditions. That being the uh, travelling fair, the uh, pleasure garden and the sort of expo or exhibition such as uh, the uh, World Fair. So uh, if you wanted to trace it all the way back, you could probably find its earliest um, vacation around the 12th century, but it's not really recognisable as an amusement park until around uh, the 1890s with the development of uh, Coney Island and Blackpool Pleasure Beach. So would you say those were the first? Um, Yeah, in in sort of my research, those are the first ones you get. Um, Coney Island was established in 1895, I think, and that is the first sort of permanent enclosed entertainment area regulated by a single company and is sort of a theme park by, uh, sorry, an a, a amusement park by the definition that it's got sort of rides and it's got ticketed attractions and a charge for admission.
1: I mean, nowadays, amusement parks and theme parks, probably the big difference is their scale, I guess. You know, amusement, par- amusement parks like you get with Blackpool um, and also sort of Brighton Pier, seeing as we are. All from down there. Um, it's that those are kind of your amusement parks. We've just got a select few interesting rides. Whereas theme parks are just these huge destinations, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it really sort of benefits from the rise of seaside tourism in the Victorian era. That's where you sort of get, I you sort of get amusement parks on piers uh, on the promenade of Blackpool. Uh, whereas when you uh, get uh, to sort of the development of um, sort of expendable income uh, around sort of the turn of the 1900s. You get the, uh, the creation of slightly larger and larger parks. And after World War II, they become massive. I mean, if you if you look at Walt Disneyland in 1955, that's about 85 acres. And then, you know, 10 years later, you get Six Flags Over Texas, which is uh, 212 acres. And then 10 years after that, you get um, Walt Disney World, uh, Florida, which is twenty five thousand acres. So that's when it becomes a, you know, a complete regional park. Christ, I had no idea they were that big. Yeah, it's so big. It's actually got its own municipal government. So it has a uh, yeah. It can it can actually make its own sort of rules and regulations?
0: That's insane. That it's a government that's also controlled by a corporation. Also a bit terrifying.
2: Very yeah. <laughs> who's the head of the government? Is it Mickey Mouse? Um. I don't know, I'm probably Bob, Bob Iger, he's the uh, one running Disney these days, isn't he? Mickey Mouse is just their head of public relations. <laughs> yeah, to quote, to quote the Simpsons movie, I'm the mascot of an evil corporation! <laughs>
0: that was a pretty spot-on impression, really. Yeah, that was good. So, so you said that amusement parks came from, was it World Fairs, and what were the other two?
2: Yeah, so World Fairs and Pleasure Gardens. Now, Pleasure Gardens were sort of like these late Victorian, early Victorian... Um, sort of areas which had sort of various entertainments such as concert halls bandstands amusement rides, zoos you could probably say that the royal albert hall sort of came from a uh, pleasure garden around sort of that area of london um but yeah it that it's sort of also benefited, benefited from the world fairs and the sort of, the world first world fair was the uh, great exhibition in 1851 which sort of has the thematic elements of a theme park insofar as it's all Sort of like these little discrete areas representing different countries as they provide their if they provide their different uh, products to this. I think one commentator called it the phantasmagoria of a commodity exchange. But at the point where the theme, the entertain the point where the amusement park sort of comes out of um, expos is around the Chicago Columbian Expo of eighteen ninety three. I think it is because that's when they start including rides as well as these. Um, sort of themed areas Mm. so would you say
0: one of the key things is that theme parks kind of unify the entire experience around one genre or experience or are they still very much kind of an overlapping between the two
2: um yeah i think i mean there are within within the theme park or within an amusement park or whatever you want to call it you get sort of three different types of attraction you get uh, the flat ride you get the uh, roller coaster and then you just get some sort of more passive entertainment. So I don't know, just watching a, uh, watching like a fireworks display, for example, could be sort of a passive entertainment. And in some respects the passive entertainment is the greatest sort of hangover from the idea of pleasure gardens. Whereas uh, flat rides and roller coasters takes it into a little bit more of a radical uh, sort of thrill seeking dimension, if you want to call it that.
1: Yeah, because I guess a lot of these places do have like theatres and performance sort of plays. They've often got different. They're like they're not the same sort of things you'd find in a dedicated theatre or a cinema or something like that. They've got these touchpoint elements. I suppose I remember. I remember there being like there's the 4D films that they have, which where well, they have like the sprays. And I've not been to a sort of Disney park since like 2007, so that might be me being a bit out of date there. But um, they kind of try and tie that whole experience style in, don't they?
2: Yeah, definitely. So
0: Thomas, given all the research you've done obviously here, would you be able to... I don't know, where do you think the future we'll see in some crazy change or do you think what we already have is gonna go for a while
2: um well it's interesting because a lot of people have been drawing parallels between sort of the current situation and the sort of situation a hundred years ago with the great depression and uh this year especially with the spanish flu so it'll be interesting really to see whether because i mean in in the 1930s the theme park industry took a massive dive as people just couldn't afford to spend their hard-earned money on sort of these little uh and fancies and most of the theme parks around that time in the gilded well most of the theme parks established in the Gilded Age beforehand um, were demolished and turned into housing. so only a few of the ones that were around in the uh, 1900s to 1929 survived. But yeah if you gonna, if you were going to say that history repeated itself, um, you'd probably see a little bit of the, of the decline in the amusement park industry. but I think the way that things are going, especially by Disney, Disney are always the uh, front runners in this is they're building on more IPs. So you're getting the uh, Star Wars, Galaxy Edge and the uh, new Marvel area. And I'm not sure if you uh, saw in the news recently, but they're thinking about building a new Disney-inspired sort of Paramount equivalent um, off the Thames estuary. So there's going to mm. be sort of like a, a Disneyland-esque area just outside of London, which is going to focus on, I mean, Doctor Who might be one of its IPs. So in answer to your question, I think theme park industry is not going to, I think it's going to carry on as it was, but you'll probably see it a little bit more perverted from the idea of it being uh, something generic, something vanilla, to something more punctuated with intellectual properties and big names and big sort of media things.
0: So it sounds like Disney making the most of everything they've bought out, essentially. Yeah, definitely. Mm.
1: I mean, they have bought out a lot, haven't they? One of the other things I was just sort of reading about for the future and it does sort of tie into things like Disney and these big brands is a lot of these sort of they're not necessarily the theme parks but they're the sort of experienced designers and stuff like that that work on a lot of these attractions and have this year kind of seen a bit of a rise and not necessarily just this year in the past couple years um, of more like at home experiences where it's like more digital things like one of the examples I saw was the infamous Fortnite Travis Scott concert it's kind of an interesting and weird one where it's like it's obviously it's not going to be a theme park in your own home but with stuff like vr coming along it kind of opens up a new avenue for people to have those same experiences i suppose
2: yeah that's definitely that's definitely a fair point actually i've it's been quite interesting the use of uh, virtual reality on for in theme parks because i mean you've got i think Darren brown's ghost train has been one of ones over here at fort park in england where you you know people have people go into this uh, little area and it's 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 more like a 4D cinema thing than anything else whereas if you go to florida and sea world the uh, ride crack in there has had a complete overhaul and everybody has to wear sort of um sort of virtual reality goggles when they're on the ride and it's all synced up so there's a little video playing whilst you're physically going on the roller coaster and going round the loops wow yeah, it's, 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 it's really interesting, but there, there, there was a move in the 1990s uh, under something called Disney Quest to decentralize the uh, amusement park industry really into little areas that could fit into like American malls and stuff. So it's, it's nothing new, this whole packaging and personalization, the theme park experience. But I mean, you could probably draw parallels to the rise of television. And the sort of the decline of cinema in that respect, they're all in in making it, in taking it and putting it into somebody's house, you do get the personal uh, experience.
0: Do any of those kind of packaged, you know, smaller scale ones still exist on a point of being popular as opposed to kind of an attraction of a time of the past?
2: Um, I don't. I think they do i think you just you get you get you definitely get some amusement parks in molds but they're only just maybe a carousel or two but it doesn't have the same economic backing as the old uh, disney quests used to do in the 1990s but they've uh they all fell out of favor pretty quickly hmm.
1: i guess they're a bit more temporary as well aren't they they are just sort of pop-up things that they might do around sort of christmas time where they'll Pop up the more of a sort of Christmas themed bit of amusement parky sort of star thing around the Christmas shoppers. I mean, like you get Hyde Park uh, in London does all that sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. I think that never was the intention. The intention was for it to be there a little bit longer. I mean, they had one, I believe, in um, New in New York in Manhattan, but in the end, they just couldn't sustain the prices.
0: I think it would be interesting to see on the you know we we mentioned music, uh, George. You said with the Travis Scott uh, concert. And now Lil Nas X, who just released his Christmas album or Christmas single, did it with a concert in Roblox.
1: Oh, did he? I have not heard about this one.
0: Yeah, he did. So I'd be fascinated to see if, especially because coronavirus has probably affected the theme park industry hugely, given that they're large open spaces that millions of people flock to. It would be interesting to see if there was a game version of any of it that develops. Or maybe there already is one.
1: I do, I do play video games myself and quite a lot of video games nowadays are moving towards more sort of live event style experiences where it's, you know, online community. Everybody can jump in for a couple hours or something like that. Sometimes the longer, sometimes the shorter, it depends what sort of thing it is. And yeah, and everybody can be sort of there to experience some event within within a game. And I suppose that is sort of hitting that amusement park thing until we get sort of, like VR headsets with sort of proper like gaming chairs that have all these different sensors and movement to it. You're not going to get a theme park sort of roller coaster experience from your house, but
2: there's a whole sort of aura um, argument as well in the fact that I mean, when you're being in a ride, you can sort of smell the smell the uh, the popcorn or vomit if you prefer, and you feel like the wind in your hair. And I don't think I, I think despite as, as as much as home entertainment will try and emulate that, I don't think they'll ever be able to get it to a point where it's completely identical.
1: No, I think it's kind of it's kind of tricky. It's yeah, a lot of the experience comes from yeah, the whole setting. It's not just the ride or the specific entertainment you're watching
0: so thomas you mentioned when we talked about this before recording this episode that a key kind of theme park amusement park development was a class difference between the two and how one kind of started to trend towards the disnification which we'll go into
2: could you talk more on that well yeah sort of the um the rise of i mean the first as i said this is this is where you sort of get the distinction between the amusement park and the theme park so if you want to say that the amusement park features various attractions, rides and games, as well as other events for entertainment purposes, a the theme park is more of an amusement park, but which is targeted at a central theme or sort of multiple areas with different themes. So the idea of the theme park really comes about um, because of uh, Walt Disney and he, he creates, Dis- he creates uh, Disneyland in uh, Anaheim in 1955 he targets it as a sort of a more uh, sort of middle class uh, thing so he, he ups the prices but then he um he justifies upping the prices by having it much cleaner and much more care put into actually designing it so i mean at the time all of the old um uh, amusement parks such as coney island was seen as a little bit seedy because they were uh, they were being sponsored by sort of like beer magnates and they, and they had sort of like uh, casinos and, and such, whereas um, the theme park, the Disneyland, was seen as more sort of like hearty American values uh, packaged in a, a, a family-friendly image.
0: Hmm. And I guess that can lead to why Disney is now one of the most valuable companies on the planet.
2: Yeah, definitely. It definitely plays a part.
1: I, I, I feel like amusement parks from the ones that I've experienced obviously more, the current ones, rather than the ones that were around when theme parks were just starting to to separate. But oftentimes they're a bit, they're not completely like one whole package. They feel like a bit sort of separated, like it's just, oh, we've got this ride in from here, this ride in from here, this, you know, those those sort of things where it's just sort of, you know, oh, I'll pick out this experience, this experience, this experience. But Disney had sort of managed to put them all together and re-theme the whole thing you know, into the theme park experience of having that, like all of it as as Disney. It's not just this bit. It's, it's not just these different rides and amusements put together. It's it's one whole unified experience.
2: Yeah, I think that's I
0: think that's probably a fair statement. Mm. So we've mentioned Disneyism and Disneyfication a couple of times, uh, Would you be able to define those because they're words that I think when you hear it, you understand it. But possibly not to the depth that it really is, and I was surprised to hear they were somewhat technical terms.
2: Yeah, I mean, sort the main one is Disneyfication, and Disneyfication is the process by which Disney, as a company, takes an existing intellectual property or an existing fairy tale or an existing historical event, say, and then they take it, they sort of ingest it, and what they provide, what they um, produce, is something which has its bare sort of bones, but it it um, vacuum cleans all of the negative aspects which um are sort of subversive to the sort of current culture or could potentially tarnish the company's image and so what what you get left with are disneyisms so disneyisms are just what's produced after the process of disneyification so it's really squeaky clean hearty american values as i said but um on top of that you also get something known as uh distry. that's what um uh, Stephen s fellman calls it And uh, Distory is sort of the the Disney company's own sort of historical canon. So it's a a point of reference that they can use the past to benefit their attractions.
1: So, yeah, we've talked quite a lot about um, the sort of experience you get from these parks and obviously Disney have probably the the top sort of goal for these parks in how to create the like whole experience but so i was just doing a bit of um looking into sort of how they develop the whole experience in these parks and there's so many different elements that we've got jotted down in our notes here that i think it's it's fun but to look at because as we said these theme parks create this entire attraction and it's not just about the rides that they're selling it's about the whole yeah sort of brand imagery that Disney has and the themed zones their food or the audio everything all of it builds up into this sort of user experience of going to a theme park um which I think is it's a really interesting overarching way that they design them
0: It absolutely is. And I think there's, I mean, the user experience we've discussed a lot on this podcast and how everything is essentially designed to build up one thing within the user. And it's all designed to around the user. Nothing's done independent of thinking of who is going to be doing that ride, eating that food, interacting with that character, actress. So I guess the the most core element of any theme park or amusement park is the ride. So how do you think the user experience builds from that point?
1: For any of us who have ever been to theme parks, it always starts with the queue. I mean, you go to a theme park and you spend most of your day standing in a queue, yet somehow you still have a really nice day. Um, and there's a, ma- a bit of a magic in that, I feel like. They've...
2: Yeah, I mean... Uh, um... In, in his book, Fellman sort of identifies five basic elements to the uh, Disney queue, but I've, I've managed to um, summarise it in four. And they are sort of the hidden line. So they hide the line, the um, queue sort of line, through the scenery, so it gives the illusion that it's always sort of empty. So by the time that you're actually at the back of the queue, you're far too invested in the uh, walkway, as it were, to turn back, so you're, you're going to be on the ride regardless of how long the actual... A cue for it is secondly you've got the illusion of progress which is the way that the sort of line snake go up against each other allows you to sort of see and identify other guests who are slightly further up in the line as you and then sort of use it as sort of like a reference to how far you've got in the uh, in the line then on top of that you've got sort of sensory entertainment so visual distractions be it props from intellectual properties hidden mickeys in the case of uh, disneyland or theming for the ride, which includes sort of like videos talking about what, what you're about to experience. And they just um, they just help sort of distract people from the mundane experience of physically queuing. And even like going up and down stairs help to loosen the mundanity of queuing. And then on top of that, you've got sort of cooling the line, so they're air conditioned, and that often actually encourages people to go on the rides just to escape the heat if you are in somewhere like Florida. And you know they they don't miss a trick so they've also got drink dispensers and food huts built into the line to you know to make up to they they've got a, a captive audience in the fact of the uh, the queue so they're trying to make the most out of it.
0: So while you're stuck in the queue, they'll sell stuff to you. They'll completely distract you and somehow make it a pleasant experience, even though you're just waiting for something.
2: Yeah, it's all sort of subliminal. It's
1: funny because as you were sort of reading through that, I was just thinking, you know, back to my experience of going through these things. And I've definitely, I've definitely done the things of where you sort of see someone ahead of you and like, oh, okay, they're nearly there. Oh, they're moving. Oh, oh it's that guy again. I can see him always oh, in the distance. He's nearly, he's getting on the ride. So it's not gonna be too much longer now. That's... It's so funny that they actually like plan planned that interaction.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. So I guess a good question is: a lot of these parks have started to have a kind of fast lane option. And does that take away? Does that make the queue experience worse if you don't have that? Surely that worsens the user experience for the majority of people.
2: Well, I think it sort of appeals to that idea of the the illusion of progress as well. So if you see somebody with sort of like a fast track pass suddenly cutting in front of you earlier. Your, your, first, sort of you, your first sort of idea is envy, isn't it? It's jealousy. So you're thinking, hang on a minute, I could easily get one of these fast passes as well. So it still builds into the, uh, to the uh, business model. It is, it's in some way alienating for the guests, I suppose. One of the interesting things that I was actually reading about
1: this is the way that Disney even does their like, fast pass sort of things they now have like the whole Disney app. So you book in, you can book in well in advance, like the rides that you want to go on, like at the certain times, you just have to arrive between your certain time. And it actually sort of begins to cater for the first time guests, as well as the people that are coming back and again and again and again, because these like the first time, first time guests might not know which rides they want to go on and they might more want to explore. But for those Sort of longer term guests. They know which rides they want to go on. They m- might know when they want to go on it, and it allows them that sort of, sort of an illusion of control. But it's not necessarily an illusion because they are sort of controlling it in a way. But, but yeah, it's that sort of ability for the different experiences of the guests to cater to what they actually want to do. I so.
2: Yeah, I mean, definitely with the rise of. um having sort of smartphones on on your person a bit more and sort of the, the idea of apps they've definitely allowed it to become a more of a personalized experience i mean in, in some of the newer rides they actually sort of greet you by name once you actually get onto the carriage just like oh hello george wyeth hailing from england oh that'd be weird
0: that that's a bit creepy <laughs> but also i guess nice and i mean both of us are very kind of aware of the whole privacy thing but if you're you know someone who's there for the novelty i guess that's quite lovely
2: yeah, it's just, it's nicely packaged totalitarianism, isn't it? <laughs>
0: that's a good quote there.
2: On that whole taking control thing, there's a
1: lot of rides nowadays which do give users more control over their their experience, I suppose. Like some of the ones where you get like a little sort of blaster thing, you have to shoot different targets as you go around. And I guess that's all part of that kind of creating, because it's kind of creating your own day out, even though something like disney or thought park are curating it
2: yeah i mean for those sorts of things it encourages competition as well with the people within your uh, carriage so if you're, if you're with a family you know shooting at all of these different targets as you go past it encourages it encourages people to interact with it more so that they can win and if, if they win yeah and having their scores sort of printed uh, printed on their uh on their ride photo makes them more likely to buy it
1: yeah that's true actually they love their um ride photos and memorabilia do you guys have any ride photos
2: I've got an entire side of a fridge made of magnets do you yeah oh nice
0: I absolutely don't
1: yeah I've never bought any myself I always look for them I'm like oh I look like an idiot in that one and then sort of move on but I know yeah you do see quite a lot of people have their sort of pictures often when when they're younger
0: yeah I mean I, I definitely regret this now at the time I didn't I passed up an opportunity to go to Disneyland in Anaheim when I was in high school in the US because our school band had a kind of go to Disneyland and perform in the park thing that if you did, you also got two days of free tickets to the entire park. And I didn't do it because it wasn't the, the, the trip itself was like just probably over 100 pounds or so. But I didn't do it because I didn't really want to do the 13 hour bus drive down and then back again. And now I'm wondering if it would have been, you know, worth uh, essentially free tickets. Because at the time I didn't like theme parks, and now I'm kind of excited by the idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, they do kind of cater for everything, really. Especially the Disney ones. Yeah, if you don't like roller coasters, there's other stuff for you. I mean, I'd probably say it is a missed opportunity, but I don't want to make you feel um, sad about your past choices. Mm. (laughs) Hmm.
0: Right, back onto design. So outside of rides, uh, the user experience obviously is also seen through food and everything else that's there, the gift shops. But Thomas, how would you say the kind of atmosphere outside of the core attractions still ties everything together and encourages people to feel as immersed as they are?
2: Well, this this is where it all comes to its sort of defining feature, isn't it? It's theme park, theme zones, and every every theme park is sort of defined by these theme zones, have different zones which completely immerse the uh, guests in a particular time, place, uh, sort of idea even. And, I mean, if you if you look at Epcot, for example, in uh, Walt Disney World, that's split up into, it's sort of got two mini theme parks within the park, and the park in itself is a themed park within a, a multi-theme park complex. So it's really meta at this point. Um, but yeah, half of it's called the World Stage and half of it is called something like the Ideas Pavilion. So it, it's really strange. You, you go into the Ideas Pavilion and they've got ideas based on sort of biology, based on energy, based on cars. And it's how you could possibly represent that as, as, as a structure. How could you represent such, of, those, such sort of abstract ideas as structures? Whereas, and then if you go to the World Showcase, you have to represent different nationalities by their architecture, for example, or or the sm- or their different smells and their different sort of licensed characters. And I found one one thing that I found quite interesting that I learned recently is um, in the Moroccan area, whilst you can buy sort of um, fezes and other sort of Moroccan goods uh, through the shop, although they're all sort of made in America, obviously, um, well, probably not made in America, um you can, you can sort of see in the background the back of another ride of the um, Hollywood Studios uh, theme park, but the back of the ride is designed to look like it could be out of a, a Moroccan skyline, whereas the front of it looks like it could be in Hollywood, which is, you know, amazing that they thought that through. I mean, the creativity of how
0: they stack all these drastically different experiences very, very close to each other and make it so you know you can be right next to a ride from a com- you know from like the star wars area while you're in something completely separate and you'd never know and it's yeah, exactly yeah and the immersion means that as you move between these places somehow the transition between two absolutely unconnected things works
2: yeah i mean for some of the disney parks i, I know that there's sort of like a bunch of underground um, tunnel systems so that you don't get somebody from future world, shall we say, walking into the wild, wild west. So, so that it's completely discreet it's completely packaged uh, sensory experience. And that's everything from, as I said, architecture to the music, the type of, uh, you could call it musical heritage that they're playing as well as some of the smells and sounds that you hear.
0: So do they have, like, little smell releases that create
2: smells? They do, they do. In the, um, I think the famous one is in Main Street, USA, which is sort of like a, a staple at all of the Disneyland. It's, a, it's the area that you've uh, enter from, and it is based on uh, Walt Disney's childhood home of Marceline, Missouri. They actually have these smells of um, candy floss and popcorn, Sort of emanating from some of the show buildings, so they're just empty buildings, but they've just got like smell. I'm not sure how they produce it, but they just have these sort of smells being produced from the windows of these buildings. It's a complete sort of sensory overhaul, just a you know complete immersion in this area.
1: And I guess if that's where you come into the park as well, it's that sort of you come in and you just get hit by all those those smells, and
2: I guess it is sort of like walking into a dreamland. Yeah, it's escapism in the highest order.
0: It's escapism, yet it's also a reminder of like hey, you want candy floss? It's available everywhere for far too much money. <laughs> yes, and that. One of the other interesting
1: things that I saw was how the staff and the actors and the actresses like even interact with you on just mundane things. Like I was reading an example about the Star Wars uh, part of Disneyland, Disney World wherever that is, I can't remember which one it is. Um but apparently like just buying drinks or something like that, you could buy, like, some blue milk from it. And they won't tell you, oh, it's this much money, or, like, dollars, if it's in the US. It'll be this many credits, because it's in the Star Wars part, and apparently they sort of call the credit card machines, like, their droids and stuff like that. And it's just... The whole, the whole experience is encapsulating where you are in that themed sort of part of the park. And it's just so
2: it all operates by its own logic.
1: Yeah, essentially. It's I don't know, it's it's a really interesting interesting idea because it's it is sort of like creating a whole different world that you can actually go and experience, which is completely different to any other entertainment industries, I suppose.
0: That's almost interesting that they still kind of use standard currencies and haven't created a flexible digital currency which means depending on where you are everything is named and labeled differently and again it also kind of takes the reality away from it so you probably don't realize the actual quantity of money you might be spending
1: oh well like they do with sort of microcurrencies in games and stuff so you'd like
0: buy you'd buy credit disney credits well not even that because you you could buy disney credits but that would still be like oh it's the park money but what if you had a card of some description that was unlabeled and, or maybe in each section, it was a different, I, I, I maybe it was a, something on your phone and each section, it looked, the app looks different based on where you are. So if it's in Star Wars, it looks like a kind of Star Wars Imperial credit. If it's elsewhere, it looks like Monopoly money or whatever. And you just buy and pay with that. And in the background, it's just charging to your regular debit card. However, you're completely disconnected from that.
2: I think that might be illegal, but it's a nice idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say that might be treading some legal sort of type tight, tightrope.
0: Yeah, it it does. It is shifty, but also the I mean the immersion it would create would be t- dangerous, to be honest. Yeah, possibly. And I
1: don't know, it's an interesting idea, and maybe it's something that people they will pick up on in future, where
0: everybody has smartphones and Apple Pay and those sort of things are part of the device right i'm saying it here i'm patenting that idea bob Iger. you can contact me if you need to uh send us a dm on instagram at assemble.it <laughs> just had to go. Get, chuck in a quick plug there oh absolutely so as you know as we round out to a pretty good episode length thomas is there anything else that you think is key around theme parks and design and amusement parks that we haven't chatted about
2: well yeah i think this is sort of Uh, just narratives really and this is what I uh, did a lot of my uh, dissertation on and it's just how you know in in different points in history different points in the 20th century even if you're if if you're looking at it different things are um, different things have got different emphases on the park Um, because I mean uh, one of the early attractions uh, Disney put in and I think this might be after well just just about the time Disney died um, was something called Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. And effectively, what it was, is it, it was an animatronic, but it, its uh, sort of USP was the fact that it could stand up independently, which was, you know, huge in 1964. Yeah. And... I mean,
0: pretty big now if you see those Boston robotics robots fall over.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but what they did is they took a bunch of Lincoln's speeches, which were historically accurate, but they sampled it so that it fit the narrative. So. For example, it only focused on uh, for the American Civil War, it only focused in on sort of like preserving the Union, and it didn't say anything about slavery or anything like that. And you've got to bear in mind this was like at the height of the uh, height of the uh, Civil War, uh, not Civil War, sorry, Civil Rights Movement. So America wanting to be, uh, sorry, Disney wanting to be sort of uh, heart, showing hearty American values, made sure it distanced itself from that sort of. What they saw as subversive at that point, um, sort of narratives, mm. and you, you see it you you see it now really just um, in light of something like Black Lives Matter, the rise well the, the ride rather of uh, Splash Mountain, which was based on Song of the South, which was based again on Joel Chandler Harris's uh, Uncle Remus stories, which were you know racist by 1880s standards. Um, that, what that's being done is it's being completely changed to uh, princess on the Frog so all of the all of the uh, theming of uh, Georgia and of the Okefenokee are being changed to um, uh, New Orleans and it's just again it's distancing itself from any um, ideas of race that it might have had you know 10 20 years ago
0: that is really fascinating, especially, you know, it ties into the Disneyfication we were talking about earlier.
2: Yeah, the terms of Disneyfication change as, uh, as well, the terms of society changes.
0: I just find it really amazing that something like uh, Song of the South, which has been, you know, hidden away and ignored as much as possible by Disney, yet Splash Mountain continued to be this big popular thing that they advertised. And it's only very recently that they've wanted to end, I guess needed to change it
2: yeah i mean whilst it wasn't as explicitly racist as song of the south there were sort of allusions to i think Brer rabbit had a tar baby which is you know is really problematic uh, image these days
0: i just find it amazing that it took until 2020 for a film that had been agreeably you know racist for a long time for its kind of spin-off to be scrutinized with a similar viewpoint yeah but i guess that raises a good point around you know how what is disney going to take next what are they going to disneyfy next and take away the politics from something to make something they can sell
2: mm. i'll, I'll be, be interested to see what you think about this pablo but i think they might have maybe a roof bader ginsburg animatronic would you be in favor of that having seen the real thing
0: uh oh it's a good point i, I think that's, I I obviously support having, I mean, yeah, I, I, as Ruth Ginsburg was a fantastic person, although of course there were some dark sides to some of her reasonings, but that was also based on kind of her age and the generation she grew up within. So I think having an animatronic is a good thing, but I worry that the politics she fought for could be dumbed down.
1: I guess Disney's are often aimed at kids, and kids are not going to be as politically aware at that sort of younger age. So they probably would, yeah, they probably would have to dumb, dumb some of it down because they're they're trying to appeal to a younger
0: audience often. absolutely. It's just a, interesting to think what they could kind of play with next. And obviously, as history goes on, obviously Ginsburg's death is recent. However, there are still elements from like.
2: I think I'd say, you know, the Cold War is there's nothing from that in Disney. It's it's interesting for the Cold War, because if you think about Disney as being super patriotic, then they are. They are sort of uh, pro-Cold War. They are sort of showing a side of the Cold War in the fact that they I mean, they don't show anything of Russia, for example. In in all of the world's showcases, they focus only on NATO countries.
0: That is very interesting. So would you define Disney as patriotic?
2: Um, I think it's supposed to be patriotic, but again, the terms of patriotism changes every four years or so, it feels like. <laughs> yes.
0: Well, I think that rounds us out pretty well. Yeah, I think that rounds us out
1: for the episode quite well. We've talked about a lot of different things as, I mean, theme parks are a huge industry and huge business. So there's a lot, there is a lot to pick apart of it and definitely been a lot of interest. I've learned a lot from uh, from this this episode, for sure. Um.
2: So thank you very much to, for joining us, Thomas. It's been really great to have you on thanks for inviting me it's been great to talk about something that i thought was just a a strange niche a niche obsession
0: oh this stuff is incredibly fascinating actually thank you
2: it's always fun to you know look at a
1: little niche obsession as well you know it's what it's it's good about podcasts you can learn about these little things that you might not have otherwise so yes as i said thank you very much for joining us thomas is there anywhere else that uh listeners who might have enjoyed your your
2: discussions could hear you well, it's a good thing you've said that, because there are. Um, you can listen to my multi-award-winning radio show turned podcast, uh, Pick and Mix, at mixcloud.com forward slash pick and that is P-I-C-K-N-M-I-X-U-R-F. And uh, if you want to just follow me, see what I'm doing, just you can follow me on all of my socials at Thomas Heisman. And again, that is T-O-M-A-S-H-E-A-S-M-A-N.
0: Fantastic. So give Thomas a follow. Definitely listen to Pick a Mix. It was one of my favorite URF radio shows, now turned podcasts. Oh, thank and you. yeah, thank you for very much joining us. That's great. Thanks.
1: Thanks for joining us on this roller coaster ride. We hope you had a thrilling experience and remembered to smile at the camera. Please make your way through the gift shop to leave the ride. See you again soon, folks.
0: And with that, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please, first of all, follow Thomas on various socials and share it with your friends, family, co-workers, and your fantasy mouse. Unlike videos and blogs, podcasts have no algorithm for recommendation, so we rely on your word of mouth as our listeners. So follow us on Instagram at Assembled.it for a deeper look into the show and our own work,
1: including behind the scenes, outtakes, projects, and updates.
0: Absolutely. And once more, subscribe to the podcast and share it among your friends, family, co-workers, and that fantasy mouse. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Thanks for listening. Some Assembly Required is co-hosted and produced by Pablo Samoilis and George Wyeth, and edited by George Wyeth. Music is by Mikey Burtwhistle. This is a 7-6 podcasting production.